Welcome to the Mosaic Ventures podcast. We are very fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Jack Kreinler, who is a very unusual breed of sort of super talented physician, a cum tech entrepreneur who's uh, founded multiple startups in the health space. Jack, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. We're delighted to have you. It would be wonderful to share with our listeners a little bit about your background, sort of, you know, how you got here a little bit about your journey and some of the seminal moments if you if you would sure uh, well my, my background is not incredibly simple but started off uh, as training as a physician uh, in London at University College London hospitals and uh, kind of paying my uh, way through by by doing IT consulting uh, UX design information architecture stuff I got my first job in fact before uh, even qualifying was with Douglas Adams um, at the Digital Village, and um, I, uh, yeah, was very fortunate to be uh, the, the the guy who designed the graphical user interface for the first Wikipedia, which was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Online. Amazing, um, yeah. So I I, I I learned from Douglas really, uh, and obviously all of his writings, um, forty years almost um, from uh, from today, uh, that you know the the world was going to change with connected devices and certainly my profession in medicine was going to be radically different to uh, to, to how we've kind of uh, seen it over the first two and a half thousand years of its life and um, that kind of led me to start my first venture in uh, health information technology uh, basically the year after I qualified. And tell us a little bit about that. Sure well we uh, we figured that people would be accessing medical information more by themselves and being and being able to explore stuff that was online and on the web uh, you you'd be able to really really quite significantly change your options and outcomes and um, we also figured that there was a way that people who are navigating these different ways of improving their health uh, could actually uh, benefit the companies they work for so we ended up creating a company that would ask questions of employees uh, a few times a year. It was very sort of web 1.0, you know, standard forms. It wasn't anything flashy on a smartphone. And we were able to tell uh, with some quite significant accuracy which people in which areas of the company and why uh, were being uh, affected by, by, by impactful issues that would uh, Im- impact the number of uh, days that they were productive, um, the number of days they were absent, and uh, the the amount of medical claims uh, that they had, and that company uh, eventually sold in two thousand and six to uh, Cigna, mm-hmm. a big American insurance company, and many many millions of employees' lives are still benefiting from uh, being able to improve uh, the working environments that they're in, as a result of some very very simple analytics. Fantastic. Well. You obviously, you know, had the bug, and when I've gone on to found you know, several other companies. Tell us, you know, briefly about you know a few of those and what, what which why you chose the spaces that sure. uh, you did. So after starting V Life, I actually started a little incubator uh, with some of the guys that I started the first company with, and there we kind of explored the real kind of very rapid application development, agile methodologies that were uh, becoming kind of popular at the time and basically did simple stuff that we always encourage uh, young startups to do now, which is to ask the questions of bigger companies, of, of the customers, 
what is it that you need and convince them that you can build it quicker and better than they could possibly do internally. And we did that half a dozen times and very rapid and reliable, reliable exits on, on each of them. Not massive, but really, really good um, proof of concept that asking the question, getting an answer, validate, effectively validating the, uh, the product and the solution before you end up uh, starting, to bu- starting building anything was actually a good idea. And that took us you know, right up to 2007. And then my uh, CTO decided to go and do a PhD in English literature at Cambridge. And I decided to build my institute in London, which uh, is, is now kind of my medical home. Um, and really, it's the work at my institute that started my next real phase of, uh, of, of medical technology ventures. Um, in 2012, I was lucky enough to go to a place called Singularity University uh, out in the Bay Area. And, sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's the kind of both the Mountain View spirit being being in the NASA Ames Research Park and being surrounded by all these uh, kind of amazing folk who, kind of, you know, sort of the, the, the average qualifications that these guys have are being advisors to national agencies, PhDs, MDs, and goodness knows, you know, Nobel laureates. And you suddenly sort of realize, wow, these, uh, there, is, there is a lot of stuff here which you hadn't even thought of. And, and their mantra is, if your idea isn't going to positively impact a billion lives or more over the next 10 years, then you're kind of in the wrong place. So left there in 2012 thinking, okay, you have um, to be more ambitious. <laughs> maybe, maybe you know the, the the couple of million, few million lives that we've uh, we we've positively affected um, might might not be <laughs> a high enough uh, goal. So um, we decided to um, think about putting into action the revolution that was then happening in wearable biosensor technology and uh, the fact that machine learning capabilities were now possible just in cheap cloud computing rather than in supercomputers. And that was really the, um, uh, the, the birth of my next set of ventures, which was the application of machine learning to, make, to help doctors make better earlier decisions. Um, specifically, you know, the company, uh, which is now called Centrion, um, that takes biosensor data from uh, people who are very, very sick uh, at home who come into hospital really frequently. And um, we, we use some very sophisticated machine learning methods to early, early detect five days in advance they're actually going to come into hospital. And that obviously, if you can act earlier and cheaper at home, people stay healthier and happier. And there are lots of people that make a lot of money as a result. Um, so yeah, another an example um, of, uh, again, asking a big organization such as a health system a payer what is it that's causing them the biggest pain uh, and thinking of novel ways of using the cheapest and quickest possible way to help them reduce cost so centrion and then uh tell us more about the obviously the other companies you're working with yeah uh so on the same theme this the, the concept of machine learning um, for better medical decision making, um, one of the things that I've always been fascinated with is uh, medical imaging in general. I think medical imaging is unbelievably cool. You know, I can stick you in something and see inside your body without cutting you open. Amazing. I don't know, but I think that's amazing. Um, the problem is, is that we're pretty bad as it goes as medical professionals when you see a ghastly lump somewhere in your lung or in your 
prostate or in your liver to know whether that's cool to leave it alone or whether to stick a dangerous, expensive, painful and possibly even deadly needle inside it to, to, to confirm whether it's um, something Think about bad or not. Think and see if that's uh, yeah. serious. Um, and that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a smoker and I see a nasty lump in your lung, I stick a needle in it 97% of the time. And I only need to do that 25% of the time. Um, but we have, you know, some really fantastic newer methods uh, of analytics like deep learning which are fantastic for these kinds of data mapped to real outcomes um, and you know histology results for many many years worth of, uh, of patients um, and you know we, we're seeing some absolutely phenomenally improved results in diagnosis as a result of using applying things like deep learning to uh, to medical imaging. So, so in that's that case, the, where's the, the training data coming from? You obviously, there's, I think there's a very large set available from the National Cancer Institute. Is that yeah, true? that's right. Yeah, then uh, the, so, so there are there are some really big national nationally sponsored trials um, that have produced huge longitudinal data sets. Um, so we get well registered, um, comparable data over time on tens of thousands of individuals. Um, for instance, in lung, but also, you know, just up the road at UCL, there, there's a big cancer data set for prostate, mm-hmm. uh, where where they've done imaging and they've done biopsies and they've done genomics and blood markers as well. There, there are some fantastic data sets becoming available, and I think one of the one of the one of the coolest ones is uh, vis- visually tangible data sets because you know, kind of, I can even show it to my mum. It's quite cool. <laughs> she can begin to understand why we're making a difference, which I think is always a good uh, a good reason to be doing something if you can actually explain it to the non-professional. Is that part of the Singularity University training? If you can do something that impresses your mum, then that's, that meets the bar. <laughs> well, I think in general, one of my mentors at medical school did tell me that if, he, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old, you're doing something wrong. Sure. So you know that the the lung cancer data set is is in the U.S. Yeah, um, and uh, is something like that also available in in the U.K. or in other parts of Europe. Yeah, there there are, well there are lots of different sources of this these data. I think one of the most interesting companies that's come around recently is uh, Zebra, um, that's taking uh, I think nine million scans from Israeli sources, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's a whole bunch of different things. It's not just MRIs, but MRIs and CTs and X-rays and things. Um, and and there, there are very, very large provider networks who have suddenly realized they've got enormous value hidden within both radiology imaging, but also just within the electronic records of all of their patients. Payers are also realizing they've got a wealth of data. I I, I think the, the problem actually is not that the data isn't there. It's just that people are protecting it thinking that the data itself just sitting there in silos is super valuable and they don't want to give it out, whilst actually the real value comes from doing something about it and making a, a change in people's outcomes. So I'm kind of more of a believer of not holding on to all this wonderful data that's sitting out there, uh, pretending that you've got something of value, but actually almost even giving it, providing obviously all the confidentiality mm-hmm. and privacy is, 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 is well taken care of, is to give it to as many people as possible um, and then the value will be will, will be gained um, from what you actually do about it as a provider um, or ultimately a payer of healthcare. Sure, I, mean, I think Google DeepMind in, in the UK is working with the NHS mm. with the Royal Free and 
couple of other hospitals and have access to data around acute kidney injury. And I think one of the things they've they've been able to get access to the data, but they've also struggled because there's quite quite noisy data. They're collecting data from lots of different systems, electronic health records, um, very siloed. And so mm-hmm. when they try to connect that together and make some sense out of it, I think it's it's been more difficult than um, they had expected. So do you, you know, do, do you see that being an issue um, more broadly, or do you think there there are lots of very kind of clean, useful yeah. data sets to work on? So, so I think human physiology is generally dirtier than jet engines. That you know, you you know the kind of sequence of things that go on in uh, in you know an airplane um, from you know the, f- the fuel tank to the pipe that leads it to the engine to the to the turbine to to the to, to the actual speed and the and and, and, over, and overall how the thing works. H- human beings are messier than that um, and because we don't collect everything about a human being um, sometimes things that look stable are actually being stabilized by other things that we aren't measuring and some things fluctuate because they're supposed to uh, rather than because something's going wrong and so there is a lot more signal to noise problems in in physiology and in, in sort of biological systems than there are in kind of financial markets or in um, mechanical engineering Um, so I think we in general have to be more cautious about um, uncontextualized data that's just coming our way the key really I don't think is trying to uh, denoise it specifically but I think it's to add more context to um, the, the the data that we're um, that we're collecting. So th- this, is, this is where really getting more than just the labs, but uh, the lab data, you know, things like bloods and, and so on, but being able to somehow capture the nuanced information that both the patient, loved ones and caregivers know about the, the, what's going on, mm-hmm. um, knowing about environmental factors that you know that might include things like weather, benzene levels, changes in um, changes in humidity and in pollution, um, and also the things that sit in the minds of the clinicians who are constantly looking at patients when, for instance, they're in hospital, or in the outpatient setting, the GP, the kind of things that they know uh, would be affecting these results, capturing them somehow, not just in very difficult to interpret natural language, but in some kind of more classifiable way that adds a real uh, kind of cross-referable context to, to why things are going up and going down in people. Then I think we can move from population scale big data analytics to um, a really a better understanding of why in you, particularly Toby, this pattern of your urea and creatinine going up and your sodium potassium doing this and that means that you're about to have an acute kidney injury um, and really getting you know into a personalized pattern uh, recognition that is that is absolutely uh, fitting for you uh, but yeah I mean they're going for much more of the let's collect as much data as we possibly can and work that stuff out later sure that's fascinating really really very interesting I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know, the current ability of, of some of the, these applications you've, you've talked about that are taking radiology data or bloods or x-ray data 
to actually provide you know, genuine clinical support to to doctors in the, in the field and how far do we really have to go from here for clinicians can you know rely on mm. these tools I think there's there's three barriers to adoption um, one of them I think is the I think probably the biggest one of all is the professional behavioral change that we need to see so uh, I'm kind of maybe a millennial um, healthcare professional, even though I'm a lot older than that, um, because I'm kind of into this stuff. And I think the millennials are more likely to be ready to adopt um, the, the concept that data-driven medicine interpreted by machine intelligence is probably better than most humans combined <laughs> when it comes down to very complicated things. Uh, by the way, just in brackets, that doesn't mean their uh, machines are as good at communicating um, mm-hmm. or being empathic. But in terms of raw analytic capability, machines are better than humans. I think we've established that. So how do we get professionals to change um, and to adopt this? Well, first of all, I think we have to help um, clinicians become a part of the initial machine learning process. So, um, you know, just saying to a clinician, hey, we've brought in DeepMind uh, and it's going to tell you stuff now um, that you have to act on. And I know this is not what Demis and Mustafa are doing with the NHS, but, you know, if that were the approach, then everyone's going to go, whoa, that, you know, how do we, the first things they're going to be asking are, where did you get the data from? Has it been cleared? You know, like, has it had the permission of patients? All of these kinds of big, big things that we're trained to, uh, to, to kind of push back on. Um, so, you know, what I think is marvelous about, about what they're doing is, uh, at DeepMind, for instance, is they're giving, um, you know, a, a, a smartphone to a lot of clinicians to kind of show that it's them inputting into the system mm-hmm. that, that is, you know, that is key. Uh, and then the outputs that they get are kind of an enhanced version of what the clinicians themselves have put in. We've done a similar sort of thing with one of my projects where uh, the rules are not written um, in an unsupervised way. Human beings write the rules in natural mm-hmm. language that the machine can interpret without, without any kind of uh, changes. And then the recommendations are read back in the same language as the rules were written in, even though there's a big spooky black box in the middle that's sort of working out how to think better than the humans when they've first written their rules. So, so that, that's an important piece. The, 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 the second piece is about regulatory. Now, what I've just described, which is, you know, giving humans, professionals, the, the ability to, to do the inputting, to effectively put in their thought processes, have machine learning, d- give, them the, give them decision support tools rather than decisions, mm-hmm. is um, a way of bridging the gap uh, between um, a... a uh, a, a current problem that we have between you know what's allowed to happen in medicine and what the regulators don't allow to happen. So so really appreciating that you know building black box algorithms that don't explain in natural language why it is 
that those rules have been recommended, or even worse, just saying do this without giving time to contemplate, is something which all the reg- all of the regulators at the moment say absolutely no, can't do it. Or at least if you do it, you've got to do a clinical trial, and every time you want to make a change or improve, you've got to do another clinical trial, so your cycles take years. So overcoming the regulatory barriers, working with both European, US and all other regulatory bodies to explain your rationale is normally the best way of doing that. And I think the, the third barrier... Have you, um, have you, sorry to interrupt, yeah. have you found the regulators to be supportive as you've been involved in building your businesses? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we worked incredibly closely with the FDA with our remote monitoring uh, algorithms. And I, I don't know how much we were actually influencing the situation, but we originally were classed as a 510K class 2 medical device. But we worked over time and I think contributed to their thoughts, which ended up creating a new class of digital health device called, uh, well, it's just basically... Um, one that falls outside of the regulatory barriers. You know, we were granted enforcement discretion, mm-hmm. which means that they can go and stick us in any class later on down the line. But we provided enough uh, contemplation time and support to the human uh, decision maker at the end, the, the physician, um, that they were happy for it not to um, have to go through you know such tight regulatory hurdles. Which means that we can iterate. Algorithmics, uh, our algorithms uh, on a weekly or monthly basis with with, with our physicians who um, uh, work for our clients versus years. I mean, it's an order of magnitude difference. Sure. Um, so, so w- you know, I think that's a really, I think that's a really key thing um, is the um, ability to work with the regulators. They actually are pretty friendly. You, mm-hmm. you, you'll be surprised to know, <laughs> um, and uh, and and. You know, the more that startups pick up the phone, get a meeting going, and and talk with the regulators, the more the regulators are likely to uh, not only pass you, but pass whole kind of areas of guidance, which enable you in the future and others to uh, to, to to work more quickly in this highly highly regulated space. Sure, I mean, we've seen a lot of startups who try to build businesses that are outside the current sort of regulatory yeah. sphere, more you know, closer to sort of wellness rather than health. But I think as they are realizing if they want to get deeper and they want to get closer to prevention and yeah. actual you know, drive performance, they, they have no choice but to sort of fit into you know, existing regulatory frameworks. Sure, or even just recommendation frameworks. You know, So even if it's not a device, even if it's a wellness app, or even if it's a, a device that tracks uh, you know, your own symptoms um, just for yourself, you want that kind of thing recommended by your GP or by your GI specialist. Um, uh, you know, even, I, I dare to say, nutrition apps. You would want the um, accredited bodies that recognise um, good nutritionists, for mm-hmm. instance, to say, yeah, these are the apps that we know work better and do no harm. I think more and more, uh, pe- you know, people forget if something works really, really well and affects your health, it also has the potential of making mistakes and, and having an adverse effect. Sure. So, so even when it comes down to wellness and stuff, if it has a profound impact in your life, uh, you know, I have an example of a patient just the other day who uh, was recommended 
pretty blindly to take a certain set of supplements and ended up uh, with uh, with no uh, ability to clot her blood and just simply from lifting up uh, some weights ended up with bruises across her entire body if she hit her head she could have had a brain hemorrhage and died so you know well-being sure is highly impactful and anything that is highly impactful can also have adverse effects so um, I think everyone should try to work to high standards even if it falls outside of regulatory frameworks but I think to your to your previous point the last thing is actually patients whether they are real patients with a problem or healthy people without a problem um, having adoption um, widespread for apps or devices um, or anything that, that, that helps uh, patients is, is it's really important to speak the patient's voice so your entire process of product design and I think consumer apps are much better than this than medical uh, the medical end of the spectrum uh, must always really understand what does it take for the patient or the the, 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 the customer to feel comfortable that their stuff is secure, is not going to be used in, in ways that they don't understand, but also is going to be acceptable to those people that are looking after them and their families, like their GPs. Um, you don't want to create bigger gaps than there already are between the patient and uh, the provider. Sure. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think I'd love to spend a little bit of time, sort of, if we can move on now, to talk about the, the, sort of the, the, the more consumer end of things and, and the quantified self, mm -hmm. perhaps and we've spent some time talking about the big data and analytics and machine learning, what I think where your passion has, has, has certainly has been in the, in the last few years. You've you, you started a number of companies, even though you live in London, you've chosen to start all of those in the US, um, mm. although you, know, you spend your time in, when you're in the UK helping a lot of startups here and many of them are in the, the quantified self space. Love, love to kind of hear your views on you know, the, all the startup activity around patient monitoring and condition management. What do you think is the, the current state of, of tech development around the quantified self with wearables and apps and so forth? Yeah, I, I mean, there's almost not a single week where you don't see a press release about uh, a new way of capturing data from your phone or a new device that's very cheaply able to capture some other aspect of either how your brain's working or your heart's working or your body's moving or um, how you're breathing or uh, how stressed you are. Um, I, I think it's good in a sense because all of the hardware aspects of this are just becoming super commoditized. So it's cheaper and cheaper to get better and better data um, about your body. Um, you mentioned this thing about signal to noise. Individuals are actually quite good at sort of knowing, you know, ah, yeah, I remember I had a load of alcohol that night. That's why my, um, you know, that's why my, uh, my, my, my heart rate variability fell through the floor the next morning. Um, so uh, the, the things that I'm seeing that, uh, you know, really for, for me uh, are exciting uh, are those that are able to help people join the dots between the data that they're seeing and what has happened previously in their in their day or their week or their months preceding. So it's that again. It's bringing real context um, to the data, um, not just delivering data back to people. Um, and that has a number of applications. I mean, you know, we're seeing um, exciting companies like uh, you know Sleepio, um, Headspace is more on the kind of the the sleep, energy recovery, recovery, mindfulness. The, 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 
what your brain's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some, you know, obviously there are some fantastic big moves happening by larger companies like Apple uh, from the hardware front that I think set the stage for a very, very widespread revolution in, in, in the data and the context around that data to help us improve activity, um, sleep, uh, manage stress, um, manage weight, uh, eventually get into more sort of you know glucose and then diabetes and pre-diabetes management, attacking you know big big problems, and then on the more kind of medical end of the spectrum, as companies like um, Cardio used to be called Alive Core, um, mm-hmm. you know where people with uh, atrial fibrillation and, uh, and and arrhythmias are better able to either gain confidence that there's nothing going wrong or better earlier detect that there's something really bad happening. Um, and you know, there's and also companies like um, you know, like Clue. I think you have a um, so, uh, you know some involvement in them, who have r- really shown that you can make quite significant changes without the need for clinicians uh, of being able to get pregnant. It's fantastic stuff. So we're already seeing some major changes happening, uh, which you know help us steer behaviour towards better outcomes. Um, I'm not sure yet, though how much those are really chewing in to the immediate, you know, next year, the year after, you know, between now and 2020, trillion dollar problems that we're, we're seeing um, in complex chronic disease. And I think that's, that's the real challenge we have to face is that a lot of these apps that we've been just been talking about now for fitness, uh, whether they're apps, devices, or combinations of both, um, they're addressing some of the significant but slightly smaller problems. We have to really sort of also focus, I think, as an economy on uh, the, the, more, the more pressing issues of um, preventable hospitalization. Um, and those are a very different type of patient to the people that enjoy tracking stuff about their health. Sure, even though you may be able to reach you know, a billion lives to help them check, track their sleep, the, the, the economic value uh, is much more in, in these uh, long-term conditions yeah like diabetes and and uh, yeah, COPD and, and what, what do you think it will take to sort of tackle those I think it's um it's sort of a I think it's a blended approach I mean at the end of the day you've got su- people are super healthy and running triathlons and eventually there's an 80% chance that all of those folk will in however many decades time end up with congestive heart failure, COPD, chronic asthma, severe diabetes, all, all of these things that you get just from a natural, inverted commas, natural process of aging. Um, so I think what we need to do is to sort of think about how we use technology to enhance health and performance uh, in usually the younger, healthier folk, uh, which I think we're getting really quite good at. It's still not super top priority for payers because payers, you know, be it the NHS or be it a big health plan in the States or whoever it is, but payers are fundamentally more important, more interested in how much their patients are going to cost them over the next one to three years. Um, and the kind of way that you communicate, engage, interact and get patients who are, who are at the other end of the spectrum, the sickness end of the spectrum, to engage is very, very different. Um, you know, my general rule is, uh, is, is that a person who can change their metrics with data in context, uh, like a triathlete who will enjoy 
uh, seeing their times improve, like someone who's got a healthy metabolism will enjoy seeing their weight come off, um, is a very different kind of customer to one who is tracking data, plotting a descending slope to an inevitable demise over the next few years. I, I, I mean, you know, this is, it's, be, it's, it's kind of uh, harsh to, to talk about it in these terms, but the reality is we, we can't just export the wonderful stuff that we've developed in consumer health and performance and just stick it into the, the grand challenge of complex chronic disease. Do you, what do you think are the, the biggest challenges to help to drive adoption in, in chronic disease? Is it a lot of behavioral change that, that's needed? It's how you present and package the solution, how you engage the, the clinicians and all the other people around it, family members? Yeah, it's loved ones. I mean, basically, the stuff that we do really well in consumer stuff, in consumer product design, we need to start doing it also for the unsexier end of the spectrum. You know, we need to be doing user-centered design, really asking patient, loved one, caregiver, provider, uh, ultimate payer, what is it that they want to see um, in, in order to, I mean, unquestionably make a massive difference using technology instead of waiting for when it's too late and using large, costly bricks and mortar and expensive people infrastructure to sort the problem out. Sure. There is no question we can make a huge difference, a 10x difference, uh, just as we potentially can to the incrementally smaller problems of, let's say, sleep difficulties in the billions of people that have those problems. But I think we need to, you know, uh, we need to make some uh, effort to apply the same principles to a less sexy area of health. Sure. Very interesting. So maybe to get at this another way, to 10 years from now, what types of applications do you think will, will have been developed by entrepreneurs to, to address some of these? Can you sort of fast forward and what do you think the world would look like then? I'll tell you what I would like the world to look like. Sure. <laughs> I would like the world to look like one where people who have had far less in the way of formal training in medicine um, are empowered, authorised and are measurably effective in helping themselves or their loved ones or their caregivers as a result of tools that are both have regulatory thumbs up and are shared even more than just um, blessed by, by doctors, um, they're shared by the GP and by the specialists, where decisions do not require you crashing and coming into the clinic or the hospital, where your apps are networking and bringing together and strengthening the care network around the people that need care the most, where the data um, is automatically integrated into the electronic health record systems, in brackets, billing systems that mm -hmm. currently exist. Um, and that the same sort of thing that used to happen when you basically lived at home with your family in a village <laughs> when where your GP really knew what was going on in your lives, that is transported into the modern era um, and your applications fed by devices that you don't even see. You've swallowed them, smeared them on your skin, stuck them on your body, uh, wearing them in your clothes, uh, swallowed them in a pill. I mean, that stuff will dissolve. Um, but, but those data streams are coming in um, and, 
and in a and augmenting a strengthened care network uh, of loved ones, caregivers, and neighbours. That's an exciting vision. Very exciting. I mean, if if, we, if it can be pulled off, it may not be in ten years, but yeah, maybe that's a little bit longer. But you know, <laughs> as you said, it's what you'd like it to to look like. Maybe moving on to another subject, but I think connects with what you were just been talking about, which is about sort of business models and alignment of stakeholders. Because one of the challenges certainly we've seen is is you know aligning sort of the, the patient, the clinician, you know, the provider, and the payer, you know, around a new technology is not always straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in the U.S. with you know the Affordable Care Act, we've seen more outcomes-based pay models yeah. um, and that's I think driven a lot of innovation you know, how, how important do you think these types of performance models are in allowing startups to actually uh, break into some of these markets that have historically been dominated by incumbents yeah I, I think outcomes-based payment is utterly essential uh, to drive um, improvement in, in healthcare, um, but you know the UK has got a funny thing because I, I don't see a structure today where heads roll if you don't perform very well. In the states, there's real competitive thing going on. You know, you, you will lose patients. You will score have lower um, star ratings. You 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 can't market your services as a uh, care provider um, if you don't perform well. Heads roll. There's genuine competition, and that sort of sense of competition urges chief medical officers, chief innovation officers, the financial guys, the CEOs of these big, you know, uh, care service providers to to do better. Um, And it provides a fantastic ecosystem for those people with bright ideas and great apps, devices and combinations therein to to do something. Um, Without uh, wanting to improve outcomes, I suppose you could still go on the basis of, like... uh, providing a nice app or a nice portal for our patients increases patient satisfaction. I think that's okay, but it doesn't really move the financial needle as much as we need to in healthcare. So I think um, there's a lot to be said for what's happened in the States um, with with accountable care um, and the way that it's uh, opened the door, in fact more than opened the door, it's now actually led to full-time employees of these organizations fishing around going to the big conferences uh, and actually looking at what's going on on TechCrunch and uh, and so on to find the companies and invite them in I mean it's it's flipped it on its head it's really marvelous so so I think that it's uh, it, it is it is important however we need to be quite cautious about saying where the outcome improvements are happening so you know let's say let's say you've got asthma and you introduce propeller health thing you know where you squirt your uh, you put your thing on your mm-hmm. asthma inhaler and you squirt it and knows where you've taken it and what the environmental conditions were and it tells you you know knows that you've taken your dose and uh, kind of guesses and learns uh, whether or not the, the medicine's working and, and so on that, that's a fantastic candidate for um, claiming that it's made a difference. But you have to prove it. You have to prove it ultimately in a prospective, controlled way. You know, you effectively have to run an ongoing trial to sort of 
claim your slice mm-hmm. of the pie. And then, having claimed your slice of the pie and quantified it, you know, actually how much have you saved for that healthcare system? When they have also introduced a brand new telehealth service, when they've also introduced a new optimal discharge service for people in hospital, where they've introduced a new drug by a new drug company, which you swallow once, uh, once a day, that claims to improve outcomes, and they're claiming a slice of the pie. So how do you slice it all up? And one of the most interesting um, mergers that I've seen recently is between IMS Health and Quintiles, uh, overall 17 and a half, 18 billion dollar value uh, merger, where if you read what it is that they're trying to do is to become the recognized trusted resource for real world data and real world outcomes. So what is actually happen- happening, not just for one drug, but across all treatments and all interventions to patients, uh, to every patient for every drug that's out there. And by drug, it may not necessarily, by the way, just be things you swallow. It could be you know, um, interventions, apps, devices. Um, so so may, maybe we'll get to a stage where there is a single independent trusted resource that will help us divvy up the pie. Um, but uh, yeah, it's going to be a challenge to see how to slice that up. Yeah, that will be very interesting to watch, uh, for sure. In Europe, where you know we we operate with uh, startups in this space, it's primarily single payer markets. Do you think um, there's much hope for for uh, startups, um, given the challenges around adoption and sort of uh, the sort of centralized decision making and the sort of non-performance based. Uh, set up. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing uh, we're talking about the UK, for instance. Yeah, I mean, it, the accelerated access uh, review um, that happened over the last year or so in the UK, I think, holds promise that uh, that both the Department of Health, the NHS, and all the stakeholders recognise that something absolutely has to be done about the cost of healthcare. And you can't do it using current ways of doing things. You have to introduce um, technologies. And so with those kinds of things like the Accelerated Access Review, um, the, uh, we will see opportunities and hopefully single pathways of technologies being able to uh, prove themselves establish a reimbursement code and then start being prescribed widespread. I don't think that it will ever be as rapid as I would hope it would be. If the if the UK as a single payer market gets it right, it could be an absolute world showcase for how quickly you get things adopted. But again, I don't know if heads roll if you don't adopt things in time. Well, we had... Uh... Tony Young, who is in charge of driving a lot of you know, the new innovation at the NHS at our uh, digital health roundtable a few weeks ago that you co-hosted with us. And you know, as you know, he's responsible for redesigning the healthcare system in you know, one part of England where there's about a billion pounds of, of spend. And you know, he's helping, he's got a budget to work with a lot of startups and innovators to help deploy their services mm-hmm. in the market. Yep. That's an, what, what do you think about that, that approach? Yeah, I mean, he's one of the kind of, he's spearheading um, one of these kind of channels um, that has is trying to be formalized across the whole of the NHS by, by the Accelerated Access 
review. Um, we need more people like Tony, is the bottom line. I mean, if we had a Tony in every NHS trust, I think this market would be a very, very different place. And in fact, people from California, from, from, uh, the, from everywhere, from all over the world, they'd possibly be trying to test their stuff in the UK and do rapid validation <laughs> here rather than there. You know, and and uh, by the way, a 60 million person closed loop healthcare service, cradle to grave, it's not a bad customer to have if you've got a disruptive technology. If you so, can get there before you run out of cash, I think is the, uh, the towns a lot yeah, of people exactly. have. But yeah, I mean, if I was to make one change in the NHS, and I think it'd be quite a simple one, it would be to have um, an accountable, I mean, there's an outcomes accountable, um, innovation lead in every trust um, they would be responsible for bringing in innovation rather than waiting for it to gravitate towards them mm-hmm. they would they would lose their jobs for not com- performing at a level that was required um, and they would stand to earn for their um, for their trusts an extraordinary amount of upside that could create quite amazing centers of excellence and yield some emergent properties, funds maybe, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, some of the big uh, provider providers in the in the uh, in the US, who are smaller than a lot of our trusts, have their own venture funds, and we're not really doing that here. But yeah, that's what I, that's a change I would make. I would I would I would create a cloning technology and clone Tony Young <laughs> across the nation. No, to see how Tony would feel about that, we can ask him <laughs> a, a, another day. Uh, w- one last area I'd love to get your thoughts on, which is around sort of communication within the, the, sort of the healthcare system. You know, not to sort of um, use Slack as a, an analogy for too, too, mm. too many spaces, but we, if you think about the sort of a medical Slack allowing um, messaging to happen more easily between doctors to discuss with other doctors, you know, a specific patient or doctors communicating directly with yeah. their patients or with even with the pharmacists and, and other care providers. Do you think something like that, that, that area, do you think is, is it's important, the, the inefficiencies, the quality of care could be improved by having far stronger communication networks? Yeah, um, well, going back to the very beginning, you know, um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was effectively central repository for all the knowledge and wisdom in the universe you carried around in your pocket and it wasn't one way you know you put stuff in uh, and somehow magically the right person could access the right information from whatever someone else uh, contributed to from the other side of the uh, from the other side of the galaxy Um, now I don't see why that isn't possible to do in medicine when we're doing it in other industries you know, if a if an airplane has a bit of turbulence, the the next minute, all the planes, potentially all the planes in the world, could know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, the plane behind it will change course. Um, every single time a mishap happens, that kind of incident um, is learned from. So the next time that kind of incident looks like it's going to happen again the plane's repaired or a certain thing is, uh, is done. I mean, you know, we have exemplars of this working in other industries, in ultra-high performance industries. 
and we have to find ways of making that happen again. I don't know if Slack or um, Telegram or WhatsApp or Snapchat or maybe more medically MedShare or, or other um, ways of communicating aren't the answer yet. And that comes back to the middle of our conversation, which is going back to the user and really asking them, how is it that they communicate? How is it that they um, would like to communicate? And uh, developing solutions that, you know, ideally um, are also given the thumbs up of their employers um, and their patients from both a sort of a data security and regulatory perspective. Um, Personally, what I would like to see is I would like to see my knowledge tapped into, not all the time, but intelligently knowing that, you know, given my schedule, um, given my availability, and given the fact that usually a question like this requires about four or five interactions that take up 24 minutes, that I'm the right person to be pinged about this particular patient. I don't want to be bombarded about every single thing. I don't want to, you know, I've, I've turned off most of my WhatsApp now. It's just too much. And, you know, we can't let the same thing happen. Uh, it's okay if I miss out the fact that there are some Prince tribute concerts going, you know, uh, tickets going um, spare. It's not good if a patient's life is, a, is, is at risk because I've, turned, I've put mute um, on my messaging. So there's a bit of work to do on that front. I think the technology is there. There's just a bit of sort of usability study to make that really um, a stellar success. Very interesting, Jack. Well, look, you've provided a lot of food for thought. Um, I've, I've certainly learned a lot from this discussion and hopefully our listeners will as well. So just want to thank you very much for, for joining us and look forward to continuing to work together to help, you know, you're, you know, you're doing a, a yeoman's, yeoman's work of, of, of saving lives and, and having a big impact on the startup community, certainly in the UK and, and, uh, and globally. So thank you for what you're doing. Appreciate you having me. Thanks.